it's actually a, such a powerful thing to lead with vulnerability and to lead with courage. Hey everyone, and welcome to Sports Arty Snippets. I'm Liz Waluka, a registered dietitian and board certified specialist in sports dietetics. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you a sports dietitian guest that will share advice, insight, and rewards of the profession. Snippets of their own career path to becoming a sports RD. Hey everyone, welcome back to Sports RD Snippets. I'm so excited to have Chelsea Burkhart today on the podcast. Chelsea is a veteran sports dietitian that has an incredible journey to becoming a sports RD that will inspire you to lead with vulnerability and most importantly, lead with courage. Chelsea Burkhart is a performance dietitian for U.S. Naval Special Warfare, working to optimize combat readiness, health, and career longevity for Navy SEALs. She has been in this position for close to two years and absolutely loves her job. Before her time in the U.S. Special Forces settings, Chelsea worked in collegiate athletics for 10 years. She started her career at the University of Florida as a graduate assistant before being hired into a full-time position with the Gators. Chelsea then moved on for an opportunity to be the first full-time sports dietitian at the University of Illinois before following her husband, who is a strength coach, to James Madison University, where she was able to work as their first full-time sports dietitian as well. Their family then moved once more, and she had the opportunity to begin the sports nutrition program at Texas State University. Chelsea was elected as a CPSDA board member for three terms, during which she played an integral role in developing the Gatorade SNP program from its inception before serving three years as CPSDA's president from 2017 to 2020. Chelsea's service model in performance nutrition is to educate and empower athletes and special forces operators with knowledge and habits to optimize performance, recovery, and longevity. Burkhart is recognized as a strong and influential leader within the profession and is deeply passionate about mentoring. Chelsea lives in Virginia with her husband, Aaron, and two awesome and crazy little boys, Kelly and Tyson. Let's jump in and let's meet Chelsea. Hi, Chelsea. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Liz. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you. How's life been treating you? Good. Busy, but good. You know, normal life. I know. We're actually recording this. It's November 4th. I don't even know. I don't think we have a president yet. We haven't looked at the news. We don't. I don't, as don't far as you know, we don't have a president yet. 8, 12 p.m., no president still. No president still, but hopefully by the end of this interview, we could, we could have someone elected. <laughs> um, so I like to start these episodes off with how we know each other. So I did the SNP program back in 2016, 2017, and Chelsea and Amy Friel were the, were you guys the SNP managers or you just ran the program? Yes, so, the, man- the managers. Okay. So I met Chelsea there. And then after SNP, I started at UConn and I, that was my first full-time job. And my first day of work was the first day of school. And you can only imagine how that went. <laughs> but long story short, I got in contact with Chelsea or we emailing and Chelsea has, I mean, Chelsea, you know this, so I'm just telling everyone else, but Chelsea's <laughs> helped me so much. The way I like to describe it is like every six months, I felt like my first two years, there was like something that maybe came up or like something I really needed help with or guidance or just, you know, situations I've never been in before. And Chelsea was there for like an hour, like every six months <laughs> for like phone, four phone calls. And I don't know, I just think 
like I know we all know in this industry, like helping people, it just comes natural to all of us, but you just don't realize how much like, like I will never forget those phone calls and Chelsea, I've told you this, but um, like, it just means so much. So if you're a student out there, like don't be afraid to ask for help because there's so many people that have like walked in your shoes. And sometimes it just feels like your situation's like unique and no one will like understand it, but someone understands something about it and you don't have to feel alone. So yeah, thank you for helping me. <laughs> Absolutely. That mentor mentee relationship is huge. And certainly I was only paying it forward, standing on the shoulders of giants who have helped me and all throughout my career and continue to do so. So those phone calls don't just happen in the first two years, they continue to happen. And uh, you continue to call people and, and need that support and mentorship. So I need it just as much as you do. Awesome. All right, let's jump in. So Chelsea, can you take us through your career path up until this point where you started and where you are today? Yeah, um, I actually started in exercise science and thought that's what I was going to do um, and realized through going to the American College of Sports Medicine ACSM conference that I loved nutrition and um, figured out, you know, at that time, there weren't really sports dietitians that were out there that we knew of. There were, but it wasn't this career that anybody was promoting that we really kind of knew how to get to. Um, and so actually I was reading an episode or an episode, excuse me, I was reading a issue of Men's Health Magazine and saw Dr. Jeff Volek's name in an article and he had MSRD CSCS on his name. And I was like Googling his credentials, like, what does this guy do? I think I want to do that. And realized I had just finished my exercise science degree. I was going into nutrition. <clears throat> so did long story short, did my bachelor's in dietetics, did my dietetic internship, um, and was actually told during my dietetic internship, there was a woman who came and spoke to us, um, who was a teacher in sports nutrition. And she said, you know, if you think you're just going to be, and I don't know why she like explained me, I don't think it happened on purpose, but she said, if you think you're going to be that blonde girl running around in the football locker room, you got another thing coming. Like those jobs just don't exist. And I was like, I think she's wrong. I think those jobs do exist. Um, so around that time, there were some sports nutrition graduate assistantships posted. Um, and one of them was the university of Florida. And I interviewed and, and was offered the position to go be a GA at Florida, finished my RD, moved down to Florida and started as a graduate assistant. Um, I was working for Cheryl Zinkowski and Anna Grout um, at the time who both within my first six months, actually Anna left like a month after I got there and went to Louisville. Cheryl left six months after I got there and went to work with Navy SEALs. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's this, I don't, both of my bosses are gone. Here I am as a GA, I've been a dietitian for six months. I was encouraged to apply for the program, was not at all ready to be in a full-time job. Um, I didn't think, and myself and another woman were both offered the positions to be co-coordinators full-time. She had been in athletics longer than I had, um, offer the jobs. I accepted, she turned hers down and that was not at all the plan and they didn't reopen it for a couple of months. And so it was myself moving from a GA into a full-time job and it was just crazy. Um, and so I ended up at Florida for two, a little over two years. Um, my career path in general 
has been impacted by my amazing husband, who's a strength and conditioning coach. And I have ended up following his career a little bit. So I was not at each stop as long as I probably would have been had I have not been married to someone also working on the performance staff and athletics. Um, so I was at Florida for two years. My husband, my boyfriend at the time had moved to the university of Illinois as a strength coach. They had had a part-time woman, Susan Kundrat, who's a longtime veteran, amazing sports RD who had started the program. Um, but she was, they, they kept her position to part-time eight months after he, my husband left Florida and went to Illinois boyfriend at the time. Again, he, um, they decided they were going to hire a full-time job and they posted it. And we were like, Oh my gosh, it came out of nowhere because Susan left, she was leaving. And that part was what came out of nowhere. And they decided like, Hey, they got a brand new AD and, um, decided they were going to start a full-time program. So again, no clue what I was doing. I went from a program that was already started at Florida that had legs that had Michelle Rockwell had started years ago and other dietitians had continued to progress it over the years. And it was a really cool opportunity as a young dietitian to go start a sports nutrition program that had nothing. You know, I went from managing a budget of $200,000 at Florida, which in 2010 was a lot of money to manage. Um, to having nothing. Like we literally didn't even have chocolate milk in the weight room and, um, took me 16 months to get that to happen. So yeah, and it was before deregulation it was before any of that stuff. We had nothing. We didn't have chocolate milk in the weight room. And so that was just really cool. So I was at, at Illinois for two and a half years. Um, deregulation happened while I was there again, my husband left and took the head football strength and conditioning job at James Madison University. I stayed at Illinois for a semester and then followed him to JMU. I started part-time in that role is what they could offer. I started 20 hours a week and by that was in February of that year. And by July, we had pushed it to become full-time, which was awesome, had great support from coaches. And so really the coaches were able to convince administration to, to push that position to full-time um, and we were only there for, a, for another year. And then our head football coach left and took my husband with him to Texas state university. Um, I taught at, at JMU and Texas state and was at Texas state for three years, um, but was never able to get that position to go full-time. It was, it was 50% time by the time I left. Um, I was in a 75% appointment, I guess I was teaching and, and doing, uh, I was teaching sports nutrition and, it was 50% athletics. And, um, you know, as, as things go in college athletics, our, our football staff actually lost their jobs. And, uh, that included my husband and we both started looking and I never necessarily would have considered the tactical setting for myself. Um, just, I didn't know enough about it. I can't say I wouldn't have considered it. I just, I didn't know anything about it. And, a girlfriend of mine happened to say like, Hey, her husband was in the military. He was an army ranger said, Hey, you know, they hire strength coaches and dietitians in the tactical setting. Would you guys ever consider that? And I'm like, gosh, I don't know. I never had thought about that before. And I sent Cheryl who I talked about previously sent Cheryl a text because she was still in the, in the seal teams. And, um, I said, you know, do you think I would like the tactical setting? And she's like, Oh my gosh, my job, I knew she had resigned. I just kind of had forgotten. She's like, my job posts on Monday. This was a Saturday. She's like, my job posts on Monday. You have to apply. I'm like, 
oh my gosh. She's like, I'm calling my boss right now. So she's calling her boss on the weekend, which just, it's not the same as college athletics. You don't usually just call people on the weekend in this setting necessarily. And uh, she called me back and and was like, you're applying, you have to, I, you have to apply. And I reached out to Rob Skinner. Um, he was, he, he and I are very good friends and he worked in this setting previously as well. And, you know, just dialogued with him about that a little bit. And so here I am working for Naval Special Warfare, supporting our US Navy SEALs. And I absolutely love it. I've been here for 18 months and uh, I really, I couldn't be happier right now. So it's been awesome. Wow. That is amazing how like every role that your husband went to, like to think that, I mean, clearly like power couple, he really made sure you <laughs> come with you. I mean, that's, you must've been just so like nerd, like what if that job didn't happen, but to think really yeah, I mean, happened. He's been so fortunate. He's gone somewhere where there wasn't a dietitian, So I wasn't ever like jockeying for a position <laughs> and, and actually so he's cool. now on staff with me. So we've been on staff together five times, which is so amazing. Cool. We're very fortunate. That's amazing. Yeah. Pretty cool. Can you tell us about your experience building three programs and transitioning into each role? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I didn't start any of that. I guess Texas state, I was really the first, first person. I've been very fortunate with the, the foundations and the amazing people that have come in before me. Um, I had a lot of great support especially like going to Illinois. Um, I didn't have the right direct report necessarily at first. And it took us about a year to six, uh, maybe a year to kind of work through that. I ended up getting my direct report changed and that really helped a lot, but I had a lot of great support within the performance teams kind of everywhere I've gone. And, you know, I think I know I've heard you say this before because people told it to you, but, but that's because people, you know, we've said it because, and people have said it to me, like, just get to know people at first, get to know what they're doing, get to know what they want you to do, what they think your role is going to be. And um, don't try to make each place where you came from before. I was never going to make Illinois in the Big Ten with hardly any budget into Florida. And then I was never going to make James Madison. James Madison actually is, is an amazing school and it was an amazing job and very hard to leave and very, it was hard to leave. It was hard to leave even a year after I left, it was hard to be gone, but um, that was a great job. And, and, you know, I think it's just knowing that each place has its own thing and how do you kind of dig into what that is? How do you serve the student athletes the best within the resources that you have? And, I am very, I'm a counseling education focused, um, more so than, you know, I haven't always had the opportunities to, I was at Illinois when deregulation happened. So I had the opportunity there to really build up the training table setting and figure all of that piece out. But since then I haven't had that opportunity. We didn't have that at James Madison. We didn't even have a fueling station and at Illinois, or excuse me, at Texas state certainly didn't have anything like that. So it's been interesting that I've actually been less resourced every single job I've gone on to, which is not the quote unquote norm of what people do. You know, usually they get more resourced. And so it's actually been kind of cool that I saw all of what could be offered with a big budget of what Florida was in 2010, 2012. Um, 
And then kind of picking and choosing like what made the most sense to bring my service model to life? What kind of things that I want to offer to help athletes in the way that I felt was best to help athletes. And so, um, you know, I think it's just, it's really about figuring out like that place and how do you make that place better? What does that place actually need? And, um, it takes time. It's exhausting. It's hard to do that again and get to know people again and not know athletes' names again. And so that part's kind of a lot because I never worked with just one team. I always worked with the whole athletic department. And so, you know, you have 500 new athletes that you don't know. <laughs> you have people who have never worked with a dietitian or never have had somebody in a full-time capacity. And they don't, they frankly don't know what you can do for them. They know that you could like write meal plans. They know that you could tell people or help people lose weight. And outside of that, anybody who's ever started a program knows like nobody knows what you do. And so a lot of times you're kind of in not inserting yourself into a situation without stepping on people's toes. And that's a really delicate dance. How do I say like, Oh, I heard that you did this, this, and this today. That's awesome. How did it go? Like maybe the next time we could also do this and I could help in this way. And kind of having those political conversations in the most tactful way. So as to be thought of or seen as a supporting role, which is what you're trying to do without, you know, taking any, getting in a turf war, because that's not the goal. And that doesn't help the student athlete, but everybody's doing the best that they can. And they were before you got there too. And so to come in and communicate in some way that you know the answers, that you know everything better than what they did, that says that they were wrong before you got there or they weren't successful before you got there. Um, Whether you're saying that or not, that's oftentimes the way it comes across. So again, it's just, it's a political dance um, of how do you become part of the team without communicating that something was wrong before you got there? Yeah, no, that's me. I was going to say like trying to build relationships was that four times you've moved. I mean, yeah. that's exhausting. I can't even imagine. <laughs> that part does get, that part did get really hard. Like it just, that was the thing I was the most like, tired of. I think leaving Texas state or even being there, like, and that I never got that position to go full-time while I was there was really challenging too. You think like, Oh yeah, I've done these cool things. I have this great resume and you go to a school and you can't get them to bring you on more than 50%. Like I was there for three years. Michelle <laughs> just... is listening to this episode. Like, they'll make it full time. What, so what has been the most rewarding part as you've watched these programs grow throughout the years as other dietitians have come in and filled in these roles? I mean, that has to be so cool. So cool. I mean, it, it really is. Like people take things to places that you just never you were never knew that it was actually ever going to get there. And it's cool to see dietitians with different perspectives come in and develop different pieces. And, you know, I always knew we'd never, that there were going to be locations we weren't going to be at for super long. So my goal was always just to create a foundation that was really sustainable, create those relationships, create, not say yes to too many things that somebody else had to come in and be trying to spread themselves so thin and doing all sorts of stuff 
and not be able to keep it going. And so it's been really cool to see people come into a foundation and take it somewhere and grow. And like how many dietitians they have at Illinois now, like that place is is so cool to me. I mean, I, that has a really special place in my heart. And, um, I mean, every, each place does, but it's just been really cool to kind of watch those things happen. It's been really cool to watch JMU grow and they have a snip this year. And I think that's so cool. And, um, you know, so those things have been really, really neat. It's just, everybody has a different way of doing something. And that's, what's really cool is that people create things or come up with things. You're like, I never would have thought of using that resource that way. Um, and so that's been really fun just to watch programs grow and then to connect with dietitians like at conferences or at APW or at business leadership workshop. And they're now working places that I worked previously. And they're telling me, you know, I, I love to ask like, what are you doing with this and this? And how did this piece turn out? And it's been really rewarding just to watch those things happen. It's been actually rewarding to watch them get paid more. And, you know, if you don't know that anytime you leave the person behind you gets paid more FYI. (laughs) And that's, it's actually really cool because it shows the value of nutrition. And, you know, my husband and I really kind of have a motto to leave something better than you found it, leave a place better than you found it. And, and we feel like we've done that everywhere we've been. So that's, that's been cool. That's amazing. Moving into a tactical position, any advice or insight on this role after being at the collegiate level for so many years? Uh, I don't know if I have any advice. I think I would just, I've absolutely loved it. It is a great fit for me. Um, It really matches my service model well. Um, A couple other tactical dietitians and myself did did a webinar for CPSDA just on the differences kind of of the tactical setting. And I think that's a helpful place to start if anybody wants to consider it. I think it gives a deep dive look into kind of like, what is the life of a tactical dietitian and what does that look like? Um, At the end of the day, like I'm a performance dietitian. I do the same thing every performance dietitian does. It just, how do you bring it to life? You know, are, are your tax dollars pay my guy's salary because they are US military. And so we don't have, I mean, yeah, we have a, great performance dining facility, but the guys pay at the door because you paid their salary so that they could pay for themselves to eat. So it's inexpensive. We have a beautiful menu and they pay, you know, three sixty-five for breakfast and five sixty-five for lunch or something, but, and they get a great menu, but we don't have fueling stations. I have a vending machine that I make sure the guys that come put in, you know, like rock and refuel and like there are performance foods in there. There's not treats in there. It's in our gym, but they buy their own recovery. So I don't do, I am in charge. I oversee the menu at our dining facility, but, um, that food service side is not the same, um, for my role in, in tactical, in the tactical setting. Um, so I do a lot of counseling and program development and, um, we do a lot more, we do a lot of like lab work and stuff. Um, so I would say my job is much more a hybrid of actually like digging into some of my clinical skills. And I know so much more about the clinical side than I ever really had to practice in the same way, just because we have the ability to, I mean, the like prophylactic blood panels I can pull on my guys and look at, 
um, are, they're really challenging and they're not challenging, but it's, it, you don't get to know it until you have to do it again all the time outside of a clinic, more clinical setting. And so that part's been really cool and how it all relates to performance and those dynamics. Um, and my guys are like 26 to 46 years old. And so they are dads and they are husbands and they are, you have these high stress jobs and, you know, you're not trying to maintain performance for 18 to 22 year old for a couple of years or, you know, a handful of years in career longevity and pro sport. Um, it's just, it's different in those kind of ways, but we're still in a performance team and, and all of that. So, um, the community within tactical is, is awesome. There's a lot of great sports dietitians and have, I've really enjoyed that. Um, there's like 40 of us and, um, you know, we all shoot each other group emails all the time. Like, Hey, I'm looking for this. What do you think? You know, does anybody have a resource on this and this and this? And, um, you know, so there's a really nice community in there. Um, but very few of us have if any, really have like another dietitian at the same setting. There's like one location that has, or two locations that have two dietitians and otherwise we're all solo. So that's something else that's kind of different. There aren't these like nutrition departments, there are human performance departments and you are a piece of the human performance department. Is that a goal to like try to get someone else or is it just like the way it is? No, it's just that it's still growing. I mean, if you think about growth in the collegiate setting, like for a very long time, nobody had two dietitians or a couple places did. And then most places start with one and it's just the growth continuing. Um, And then there's, you know, the funding and the dollars that have to come from it. It's not like we are for profit. We can't, we don't have donors and sponsors and, you know, like, Wow. That webinar was amazing though, that you guys did in, was that in June? I don't even know. Yeah. I don't remember, but yes. That was really like insightful. And I mean, it feels like a different world, but like you were saying, there's, there's similarities from the collegiate. Oh yeah. But I was just like, what did they just say? And it was great because you were like debunking, like what someone was saying. Yeah. 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 Cause there's things you just don't know, you know, unless you speak the language at all. And, and those guys are cracking me up because they've been speaking the language for so long that I'm like, okay, so the word you just said, this actually meant this. And I was like, Oh, Oh, like that was me on the other side. All right. Being the SNP student board member during your time SNP started, what is it like watching the program grow throughout the year since it began in 2014? Oh, it actually began in 2013. Um, and it has been awesome. Um, it's been so cool to watch it grow. So I actually wasn't on the board when I first started in that role. Amy Bragg was the active board member and they wanted to pull a non-board member in to help with the project, just to help keep the, the perspective of the membership and those kind of things. And so, um, they kind of came to me and said, well, I got a phone call that was like, Hey, we were wondering if you would be interested in this. There's obviously a dilemma in the performance nutrition sports nutrition world in that you can take your RD exam and never have even answered one question in sports nutrition, right? Like there's no opportunity. Nobody's forced to get these hours and really it's an advanced practice and you can't really get many hours in sports nutrition, um, until you're just because there weren't very many 
sports nutrition programs at the time, it was hard for people to get that good hands-on experience. You can't really be practicing sports nutrition until you have your RD credential. Sure, you can help, you can volunteer in undergraduate program, those kinds of things, but the way our licensing and credentials work, how are you getting real sports nutrition experience? And so that was a conversation between CPSDA and Gatorade when Gatorade had said, you know, how can we help the profession and those kinds of things? They said, well, this is really the issue that we're having. And, and then people are having to go work for free all the time. Like, how do we better mitigate this? Um, how do we support just position development? How do we support professional development in individuals? So it was kind of the brainchild between the two of them. And, and Gatorade really said, like, we'll fund it figure out how you think it should come to life. What should it look like? And they still to this day are very hands-off in the program. They let, which is so cool because they let CPSDA as professional sports dietitians develop and grow the program in the way that the profession needs. And so um, it, that's a really cool part of being helping with the program is that there's a lot of autonomy there in order to continue developing it into what the profession needs. Um, so it was a lot of, you know, trial by fire at the beginning and figuring out, you know, what was going to work. And it was so new that, you know, it was really important that every position, every location was organic and that every institution was able to kind of navigate their position the way that made the most sense for them. Cause there just was not a lot of continuity from one program to another. And still certainly programs are really different, but, um, we had, Two, we had someone at a, like a training facility, like an IMG, it was at IMG, we had somebody in pro sport, there were only six immersion sites the first year. So there were four in college sport, one in pro and one at IMG in a training academy. And, you know, it has since grown to 10. And there's all sorts of competencies built in now. And, you know, they're doing um, monthly calls where the, the SNP fellows get to talk to, you know, get a lecture from another outside sports RD who's doing education in, you know, something that they are a subject matter expert in. And there's just these cool high level things that are being offered within the program now. And it's been really just neat to watch it. So I helped with the program for four years, I think, three years three or four years um, in kind of different capacities and then um, stepped into the president role. But so I had to step away from SNP, which is, which is hard and sad, but it's been really cool to watch it like flourish and grow and um, continue to do the things for the profession that it needs to. Certainly we can't, if we could have a bajillion fellowships, it'd be lovely. I mean, there are, there are a lot of them, but it's just been really cool to watch it, um, to watch it continue to develop. Yeah. Has it been like 70 or 80 people that have gone through it? Is this year? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I don't know. Um, I guess, sure I guess if it was 2013 and this is 2020, so there's been seven years. So we went up to, I think we went up to 10 right after that first year. So yeah, 66 people or something who have gone through it, which is so crazy. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, that's a really, that's a fun question for you to ask because I didn't, I had not even thought about like how many people have gone through the program and I, I, yeah, I bet, I bet it's. Yeah. 60. Well, it's crazy too, because like, I don't think a lot of people think about like that there wasn't SNP before, or at least like dietitians coming up like that people before SNP, like you didn't have that time to like, like for you, I guess your GA was like your SNP, but like 
it wasn't planned that way, but it was. Right. And certainly <laughs> so many people, you know, don't go through the SNP program and occasionally a person leaves the profession after, but for the most part, a large majority of those of people who have gone through it are still practicing. And, you know, certainly lots of people become great professionals without ever having gone through the SNP program, but it's, it's been really cool to watch. That's amazing. Serving as the recent president of CPSGA, what's something you've learned about yourself as a leader over the past three years? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. It was for sure the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, leading a group, like being in a position over an organization within an organization that I have so much respect for that was such a big part of uh, getting me even to that place and is still such a huge part of me today. I think the biggest thing I learned or the biggest thing that it helped me know I needed to do was have better self-awareness. And I had to work through what did that even mean? What did I need to learn very quickly about myself as a leader in this new type of leadership position that on the board you're serving with your peers. It's you and eight other people who are just as qualified to be the president as you are. And for whatever reason in the dynamics of the board, you're the one that maybe makes sense at that time. And, and that was true for me in, that, in those three years. And leading your peers of such phenomenal caliber that have been voted in by the membership is just a really powerful and very different thing to be in that position. And so be needing to have a level of self-awareness to be able to look at myself and say, what are my weaknesses that are going to impede my ability uh, to serve in this role? And how am I going to, how am I going to look inside and see those things? How am I going to make sure that I have um, mentors within the board that I'm serving on to be able to, to call out my weaknesses, to be able to um, help me see where my inability to lead or places where I needed to grow things that were just not beneficial. It's no different really than, than in, in any other relationship that you're in, in your life. So those professional relationships, as well as personal relationships, you hope to have people in your life who can help you grow in every single stage. And that for sure was the biggest thing for me was was becoming more self-aware, listening to podcasts, reading books, things that helped me see the conflicts within my personality um, that were going to impede my ability to, to serve in that role appropriately. Um, so I would say that the, the importance of, of self-awareness and, and trust, having those around you that you trust who can give you that honest feedback when maybe it's not what you want and, um, or maybe that's not what you want to hear, but they're they're They trust you and you trust them enough to, to ask for it and to receive it. Um, and I think you have to be able to ask for that feedback too. Like, Hey, this is how the situation went. This is what I intended. How did it, how did it come across as I was like leading us through that discussion? Um, and, and finding out how your leadership is being perceived in order to, in order to grow and continue um, being able to represent a group and an organization in the way that um, everybody involved needs and feels supported by. Um, the other piece that I would say is the reality of the statement that to whom much is given, much is expected. 
And that's a really just big thing that we're a membership organization in CPSDA and nobody's vote counts more than anybody else's. And you're a, voted into a position on the board by, by your peers. And then there's a large expectation that we're not a national governing body. We're simply a membership organization. And to be given that opportunity to serve so many sports dietitians while also working to move the profession forward by leading the membership, by offering opportunities for growth and resources, um, there's a lot that comes with that. There's a lot of expectation on, on the board. And there's a lot of expect of like a lot of expectation that the membership has of the board <clears throat> who they have elected. And that's completely acceptable. That's the way that it should be. It's what pushes the organization to grow. And so just really feeling how real that is, that to whom much is given, much is expected. And you're given that opportunity by other sports dietitians to lead them. And there's a really high expectation of um, how visible everything that you do, every decision that's made is very visible. And knowing that there's a high expectation there to continue the growth of the organization and the profession. And, you know, just really realizing like how cool it is to have the support of the membership to, to be leading them. And then the real reality of, of doing that. And, you know, everybody on the board is, is a volunteer. And so I'm talking about a job that you don't get paid for, that you get paid for emotionally and huge dividends because it's very rewarding, but it's on top of your paid job. It's on top of your job as a mom and a wife and, and all of those things. So to kind of answer that bell for three years, um, it was for sure the hardest thing I've ever done, but so rewarding. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for absolutely anything. It was, it, it was the hardest job I've ever had yet. It was so hard and heartbreaking to step away from, even though I knew it was the right thing for myself and the organization at the time. Wow. That's amazing. I, I think you brought up a good point about self-awareness and just being aware of your strengths and your weaknesses. And also asking for feedback. I think that's easier said than done sometimes, but it's kind of crazy to think if you never ask for feedback, like you don't really know if you're on the right path or not, and you're almost wasting your own time, but um, that is incredible insight for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to ask for feedback. I think it gives people the opportunity to know that you're willing to receive it. Um, that if you aren't asking you're just not opening that door, opening that line. And, um, you know, mentorship is a really important thing to me. It's my absolute favorite thing about our profession. I, I, I really enjoy it. I'm just very passionate about it. And if I'm going to take the opportunity to give others feedback, which is a huge piece of mentorship, I have to be willing and able to, to take that feedback and, um, it's not always what you want to hear. And you have to have people who you trust enough that they trust you enough to tell you the truth. They trust that you're not going to get mad, that you're not going to shut down. Um, and, you know, I could see in myself sometimes like, Hey, I'm, I don't feel like this went very well. I think I might've overreacted on this or underreacted or not led appropriately. And, you know, what do you think? And, and I totally agree with you. I think if you're not asking for feedback, you just may never get it other than in a review. And it's great to know what your boss thinks. It's also a completely different thing to know what your peers think. And you don't want to wait a whole year to find out how you're doing. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> 
I know you just mentioned listening to podcasts, reading books to help you as a leader. Has anything specifically stood out to you along the way? I really started getting into Brene Brown right around the time that I took the president role. And I, I needed I needed some leadership from outside to help tell me what the question, the answers to the questions I didn't even know to ask. There were so many things that I I didn't know. I, I didn't know what I didn't know and how could I, how could I? I had never done that job before. And so it was, her approach to leadership and her discussion of vulnerability and courage um, is, it means a lot to me. And I didn't know how important those things were um, until being in that role and really learning through her books and her, I guess, really just books at the time. Now she has a podcast, which yeah. is great. Um, and kind of take pausing and really seeing those things in myself and trying to practice the things that she talked about, that she does talk about, and just seeing how much it paid off. Um, and so I think, no, just learning, like I could, I could do this. Like it wasn't something that it wasn't on my bucket list. It wasn't something that I was aspiring for necessarily. It was, it was the right thing at the right time and for myself and organization. And it was, um, surrounded by just so many amazing, amazing leaders that you don't have to do any of those things by yourself. And that was the coolest thing is that, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I was the president, but we were all making decisions together. And anytime I wasn't sure, it was okay. And we were talking and dialoguing and making big decisions together. And, um, and it was hard, but so rewarding. And I think just seeing how to practice leadership and how to be transparent and how to be vulnerable and that those things really pay off and that there's so much that you get back from working on leading that way. And um, yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question. No, but. Exactly. Do you have a favorite Brene Brown book? Sorry, putting on the spot. I, you know, I actually do. And I think it would be the most like unassuming book. And I've said this to people, to, so anybody I've recommended yeah. it to, I'm like, if you pick up this book and nothing about the book the cover, the back cover, like resonates with you, you should still read it. Um, the, her, it's one of her first books. It may be, it even is her first book. It's called, I thought it was just me. That's and, I haven't read yet. And I didn't, it didn't, I read the, how, I don't even know how somebody sent it to me. Somebody texted me a screenshot. And I was like, Hey, I just got this book. I'm kind of excited to read it. And I looked it up and I thought, Oh, you know, cool. And I just moved on. And literally three days later, it came up again with another professional. And I'm like, you know, why did this just come across my life twice? And I've never heard of this book and it's not attractive to me. Um, and I ended up the second person I was talking to about it. I have um, Audible and she didn't. And so I actually downloaded it and sent it to her because you get your free, your first free Audible, first Audible free or whatever. So I sent it to her. I'm like, well, 
now it's on my playlist. Like I might as well listen to it. I just told someone else that they should read it. Like maybe I should read it before I'm recommending it to someone else. And now I want like every person to read it. And, and it's more geared towards females. Uh, and it's because Brene Brown's research is more geared. She's done more research on females than she has on, has done on males. Um, but that book was a huge like game changer for me. Um, and it's all about shame and we don't really talk about shame. And even psychologists don't really talk about shame, social workers, like they don't really get taught a lot about it. And it's so interesting to pick people apart and see where like, there's a shame trigger in them, where there's a shame trigger in yourself and what that even means and what that emotion means and that we all feel it and how it permeates our entire society. It's so interesting. And it really helped me interpret myself, but it helped me interpret other people. Um, it was really like the disc assessment kind of did the same thing for me. It helped me interpret lots of things about people and really doing a deep dive with that book. I thought it was just me, um, into shame has been really just transformative for me and how I read other people, how I read myself. Um, and you have to be in a pretty like decently vulnerable place to have the ability to, to really read it and take it in. Um, just as far as like your own self-awareness and being able to kind of like read something that's hard to really like see in yourself, put that mirror up me like yeah. about yourself and being like, Oh, yeah. okay. But it's a good, yeah. it's a good way. You're like, okay. Like I, like you just said, like, I thought it was just me. Like, it's not like everyone else. Yeah. And you know, I never really thought that I, I'm not that person. I'm not that it didn't resonate with me at all. And so I think, um, that that was the coolest part about it is that I was like, what, you know, what, I don't know. I don't, feel this. I'm not worried about anything. I, you know, anything that I knew of at the time. And, um, it was good. It was just amazing how hard it hit me, I guess, how, you know, how good it really, it really was. And I love, I love dare to lead. That one's good too. Um, and she has actually a book on parenting that I really like too, but. All right. Everyone go read that book now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, best piece of advice you've ever gotten? I This piece of advice was from my, the guy who ended up being my boss at Illinois that I kind of jockeyed for position to, for him to be my boss, get my reporting lines changed. And he said to me, the best way to get your next job is to be really good at the one you already have. And I will text him randomly over the years and just say it back to him. And I'm just like, thank you for this because he didn't, I don't even know if he meant to say it. I don't know if it was a quote in his life or if it was just something about how he really feels. And, you know, it really just means like, just do your job really well every day. Don't worry about what's next. Don't worry about where this job's going to take you. Uh, Just do your job really well. And your life's going to work out. Things are going to work out. And, and whether that means your actual, like the best way to get the next job, the next job might still be where you are. The next job might be someone coming to you and saying, Hey, we have this new project and we'd really love for you to lead it. Or that next job might actually be literally your next job and you're moving on to something else. And, you know, somebody has seen something great in you and they make a recommendation or whatever. Um, And I think it was just a great foundation for how I go about um, 
my, my every day, or it was something that helped kind of put words to how I go about my every day. And I just really appreciated that. And I've said it to so many people since then. And I, and I, you know, it's, it's probably the piece of advice I, I typically pick because it was, and still is just so helpful for me. That's amazing. I feel like I definitely heard that like an APW. An APW. I'm sure I've said it to you before. <laughs> Love it. All right. Ready for the rapid fire round? Sure. Favorite Gatorade flavor? Um, I have to think of what it's even called. It's one of the, it's a, it's okay, a we can say color if you don't know. It's like green frost or something like that. And I don't know if they even make Wait, it anymore. Is it like the teal one? Yes. Okay. Yes. That was around 2001. Yes, probably. Yes. I don't know. That is a good one. I'm glad I asked you. Cause I thought you were going to say like glacier freeze or something, which is still an amazing flavor. Yeah. Um, okay. What are two leadership qualities that are the not most commonly thought of? I think the biggest leadership quality is courage. And I don't know. I don't know that people always think of that one. Um, I, I think that courage is huge and I, I don't know, I think I have to go with Brene's vulnerability. I mean, I just do, I think. And when you think of that, it doesn't mean like you, that you roll over on something or that you like let people attack you or, you know, like vulnerability. It doesn't, it, it's actually a, such a powerful thing to, to lead with vulnerability um, and to lead with courage. And I, that's what I look for in leaders who I, or what I notice that I really admire about a leader when I, I, you know, realize how much I care about them or I, you know, realize what they're doing for me or how, you know, how much I'm enjoying their leadership is, is really their courage in situations, their courage in conversations, um, their courage to, to do hard things and to make hard decisions, whether they're popular or not. Um, and to be, to lead with vulnerability as far as like leading a staff or leading a group of people, um, and say, you know, being able to, to apply that is, is hard. And I think you have to have the courage to be vulnerable. <laughs> That's amazing. I think Brene Brown does say you can't be courageous unless you're vulnerable. There's a part in her book I'm where sure she's saying like, yeah, I'm sure she does. And, you know, honestly, it was the biggest thing that the, the leadership I was getting out from underneath of at Illinois, the thing that that leader at the time, that leader didn't have, he wasn't, he had, he didn't have any courage. And so I saw that, you know, long before I was listening to Brene and I don't know that I had the words to necessarily put to it. Um, but that's absolutely what it was. And it, there was no, I just couldn't follow him because I didn't feel like he had the courage to lead. And it was just so off-putting to me that I knew we could do, I could do more. We as a uh, performance nutrition or perf human performance staff could do more if we had that better leadership. And I, I've just realized through my career and listening to Brene how transformative it is. <laughs> All right. Does pineapple belong on pizza? If there's also Canadian bacon and jalapenos, then okay. yeah. Good. Favorite memory during quarantine with your family? Oh man. So we, um, right before all of this happened in like December, we closed on a house here and our boys are like fish. They just love to swim. So, um, we have a pool at our house and 
luckily in Virginia, somehow it does not change the cost of your home. And we're like, same cost for a pool, no pool. Like, yeah, pool, sign us up. So our boys are now three and five and spending like summer days with them at the pool and realizing like, I don't even know what time it is. I mean, when I'm playing Candyland with my kid, I know what time it is. The time doesn't pass that fast <laughs> when I'm, you know, I'm like doing my parental duty. But when I'm like, we have a slide and a diving board and <laughs> I'm like, when we're all doing crazy stuff and having a great time in the pool, the time just passes. And we got a lot of that during quarantine. We actually opened our pool in, it was freezing outside still. And I mean, not freezing, like in but March? was freezing. No, but we opened it in May. <laughs> And May is pretty oh, early. Yeah. Like it's uh, the water was, you know, 70 something degrees and we opened the pool. <laughs> That's really cold. Um, and we, had, yeah, we had a lot of great summer days, just wasting some quarantine time away in the pool. Favorite place you've ever lived? Harrisonburg, Virginia. Um, JMU is like in the, in the Shenandoah Valley in the heart of the Blue Ridge mountains. And it is absolutely gorgeous. And the campus like sits parts of the campus, like sit up and overlook the mountains and it is gorgeous. All right. Last question. Are you ready? Yep. If you could tell your younger Artie self one thing, what would you say? I would say it's okay to not know what you don't know. That everybody around you knows how far into your career you are. They know whether you're brand new. They know whether you're brand new, maybe just in this setting, you're brand new, like coming into the tactical position after 10 years as a sports RD. And it was like brand new. I was like a new art. There were so many things I didn't know. And everybody knew that. And everybody knew that when I was 24 and just starting out as well. And I didn't know that. I didn't know. <laughs> of course, I knew if I had rationally thought of it, but I didn't know. In my mind, I was like, don't I have to know everything right now because you gave me this job and I have this credential? Don't I have to know all the things? And aren't you expecting me to know all the things? And the truth is no they're not expecting you to know all the things and that's okay. They know that you literally like just graduated. This is your first big kid job, all the things. And it, I wish that I knew that because my ability to have humility and to be vulnerable and all the things that I say people should be now, I didn't even know that was a thing and I didn't know it was okay. So I just said that they are like the most important leadership qualities. And I didn't even know they were okay, <laughs> let alone things to be aspired to. So, or yeah, things to aspire to do or be. Um, so that's what I would say. And I don't know that my younger self would have listened because I thought I knew it all. <laughs> I thought I had to know it all, but uh, that's what I would say. Love that. It's okay not to know. Yeah, it's okay not to know. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for being on today. Thanks, Liz. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks, Liz. You too. Have a good week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode on Sports Artie Snippets. I hope you found our conversation helpful today. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Share the podcast or tell another sports RD to be or sports dietitian about it. 
If you can rate and review the podcast, it really helps the show and is much appreciated. Remember to follow along on Instagram at SportsRD Snippets to see what SportsRD guest is featured each week. I'm super excited to bring on my upcoming guests, so please stay tuned. I'm Liz Waluka, and thanks so much for listening.